My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Today I want to take a, a look from a different perspective, and I want to start by talking about Fonzie. Um, because when I was a kid in the 70s, uh, I loved Happy Days. I remember this, seeing it in 75, 76 when it came on, and I, 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 I loved this. I, I, he was a greaser, he wore a leather jacket, he rode a motorcycle, he was the epitome of cool. I actually ride a motorcycle today because of Fonzie, because as a little kid, 11-year-old, I thought, I want to be like that. I started working on cars because of that, and um, in fact, take a look at this. This is from 1976. This is me right here with a Fonzie t-shirt, a ringer tee. That's an original 70s ringer tee. Hey. And uh, my brother, mom, and grandma and aunt. And so uh, anyway, you can move on please quickly. Um, and so uh, not as cool as the Fonz. Did you know, and I was so greatly disappointed when I discovered this years ago, that Henry Winkler, he can't ride a motorcycle. I watched him in an interview Somebody talked about that, and he goes, actually, most people don't know this. I'm severely dyslexic, and I cannot coordinate throttle, brake, and clutch. In fact, he's, he went on to say the first time uh, they were filming out in a parking lot, and he had this uh, 47 Harley uh, knucklehead that he was bringing in, and uh, he gunned it. Uh, he, didn't, he, he just couldn't work the gears, and he, he just shot over the parking lot. Sit it, he laid it down, put it under a production truck, and they never allowed him to ride a motorcycle again. So all the shots of him, they later moved to a Triumph, which is a lighter bike, and they kind of pushed him along. They put him on a process trailer to pull him along. All the shots are him getting on, sitting on, or getting off the bike. He's the epitome of cool, but he can't ride a motorcycle, right? I, I was crushed when I discovered that. One of my heroes is not who I thought he was. Uh, how many of you remember the 80s movie Flashdance? Uh, okay, I know, my, my wife, we never saw it, actually. So, uh, But Jennifer Beals plays this uh, Iron worker by day, this tough gal who is an exotic dancer by night. Her dream is to really dance for a, 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 you know, a higher scale, a real production theater dance group. And so uh, toward the movie and toward the end, the climax, she's auditioning for this. And very skeptical judges are looking down on her as a normal person and without formal training. And she does this amazing routine. And she switches between styles of dance four, five, six different times, and she's winning everybody over, and they give her an applause afterwards. And millions and millions of women were inspired to greatness because of Jennifer Beals. And most women do not realize that she did not dance one lick in that movie. In fact, not only that, that it, it was not a dancing double that danced for her. It was five different dancers because nobody could ever be that skilled in the varying styles that the movie portrayed. And so they had to find a dancer for each style and 
trick the shots to make it look like her. And did you even know that one of those dancers was a man? In order to pull off a couple of those things, it needed a male dancer. Talk about disappointing. All your dreams, ladies, you know, your sweatshirts cut off, pulled over your shoulder. You don't need to do that anymore. And I'm hoping you don't do that anymore. Now, I get the fact that it's television and movies and they're built to deceive us. I know that's what we pay for, right? We know that, okay? We, we know that. We get that. But sometimes those messages, as subtle as they are, do begin to creep into our heart and we begin to believe those. And what if the messages that we believe are actually not true? What if the way that we've decided to receive information, interpret information, especially as followers of Jesus Christ, are through a set of lenses that if we were to let God speak into us would, would actually not be true. Today, I'm not going to give a sermon. It's going to be the weirdest sermon I've ever given if you think it's a sermon. But it's more like a pastoral counseling time. So imagine you've come into my office and you're talking about relational conflict. You're talking about some identity struggles. And we were to sit down. I would walk you through some of this. I, I firmly believe, because I've experienced in my life, some of you have, maybe it helps when you get a little bit older, you discover that the story that has been built around your life or you've built around your life, your identity actually hinders the work of God. What would it be like if you were to have such an honest moment to get outside of yourself and see yourself from a different perspective and realize that the way you've been living your life, especially as a follower of Jesus, has been built on a message that says you can do it. I believe that so many followers of Jesus are receiving the message of Jesus, but then they're trying to live the Christian life on their own. And it just doesn't work. I believe that if we could see ourselves from an honest perspective, as an outsider perspective, uh, we might be living a false story. We might be interpreting data. We might be seeing everything through a story based on our hurt and our pain. I want to give you a couple of illustrations of this from my own life. And this is about... a pretty difficult time period in my life. I was a youth pastor living in Boise. Things were great. I'd been there about three years, uh, small church, little Baptist church, but loved the youth group. It was just fun. We were without a senior pastor. So I started filling in. I started preaching on Sunday mornings every once in a while, doing every Sunday night. I was leading worship on Sunday mornings and Sunday night. And I was also doing youth group. And so I was getting burned out. And so when we finally did get a senior pastor that came in, I was really relieved. I was trying to pull out of things. And he said, hey, would you mind if I uh, led worship on Sunday night? And I said, hey, no problem. That'd be great. You, you can help me out. Well, um, I didn't realize that, you know, that he didn't really know how to do that to the level that they had been used to. How about that? Is that, is that politically correct? And so after a while, the deacons came to me, the ruling board, they came to me and said, um, we, we don't really like what he's doing. And so uh, in the passive aggressive way that a lot of leadership teams do, they said, if he comes to you and wants to lead on Sunday morning, just say no and say that we have given you that task. Of course, that is a really horrible way to lead, okay? But I, I was young. I was in my early 20s. I didn't know that. And uh, one day, sure enough, he came to me and said, hey, James, I want to start leading on Sunday morning. And so all I knew to do was to say what they told me to say. And I said, actually, the, the deacon said they want me to do that, and um, you would have to go to them. That did not go over well. He called me rebellious, insubordinate, wrote me up because I was not responding to his leadership. There was a, a moment where one morning I came in 
And I went down the hallway, waved and said hi in his office. I went to my office, which is a different hallway, and I sat down there, got to work, and knock on the door a few minutes later, and he comes in and he says, hey, is everything okay? I go, yeah, things, things are great. And he said, well, is everything okay with us? And I'm like, uh... That's an interesting question, isn't it? If everybody asks, is everything okay with us? You know, then it's not, right? But I didn't know. I was young. I go, yeah, sure. What's, what's up? He goes, well, when you came in, you didn't come down and give me a hug. And I swallowed hard and I said, well, I don't really give hugs. I didn't grow up in a huggy household. Most of the physical attention that was given to me was painful, you know, abusive, you know. And so I said, I, 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 I just not a huggy person. A little bit later, we were doing this Sunday night thing, and it was a sing thing where we had dessert, and it was a kind of a youth talent show. It was fun. And uh, I helped clean up afterwards. I'm vacuuming. I have a smile. We're just laughing, joking. It was a great time. I'm vacuuming the auditorium where we met, and I look over at one moment, and he's standing in the doorway of the auditorium, and he's got this forlorn, this sad face on. And so I just wave. That next week, he brought me in the office, and he sat me down, and he said, I want you to know that you're killing my ministry. He said, everything you do succeeds and everything I do fails. You are making me look bad. And I'm just a kid, and I don't, I don't know how to process that because I'm not trying to do that. I don't have any ill will. Come to find out, from the very first day, he saw me as someone who wanted his job, as someone who he was intimidated by, who, when I did events, they were successful. And when he did events, apparently they weren't successful. And I was a threat to him. I didn't know that. I didn't have that heart toward him. I had goodwill. I was seeing things from a positive perspective. But I didn't realize the narrative that he brought into the job was that somebody wanted his job. And so no matter what the situation, he saw it accordingly. And later did I only realize that he had a two-year journal of every grievance against me, of everything that I did wrong, and not once did he ever bring them up to me, and he used them as evidence against me. Talk about a painful time in your life, right? I'm just a kid doing my job, having fun, a time of my life, only realizing that someone is seeing it differently. What if you see life differently? What if in relationships you're not assuming goodwill? I didn't know this guy had a scarcity mentality, and every time I, quote-unquote, won, he lost, which that's not how I live. I have an abundance mentality. I want everybody to win, right? I didn't know that, but I've come to discover that we all see life from a different set of lenses, that in the course of our life, because of the way we have grown up, our family experience, church experience, work experience, educational experience, that we, and I'm going to say choose, that's a strong word, but we choose to see things through a perspective, through a lens, and we all do it. Every one of us does this. And you could take two people that grow up with the same exact set of circumstances and they see life differently and they see the events differently. My own story of growing up in a house of pain and a house of fear and a house of abuse and a house of anger, those things happened to me, but I chose to interpret those in a specific way. And it was only by the grace of God that he came into my life and showered me with forgiveness. And then that was the natural overflow was to forgive others, including my dad. If I hadn't done that, I'd be a bitter, angry person right now. Now, in my life, some things that have really helped me, starting with college, are these things called personality tests. And I was first introduced as a freshman and a sophomore to tests like the Myers-Briggs. 
Okay, I don't know if you know the Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs, uh, it, it's, a, it's a simple test that uh, helps you discover who you are and then therefore how you relate to others. And then later the Taylor-Johnson, which is about different ways you relate to others. And then the DISC test, D-I-S-C. And then more recently, Strengths Finders. And they all attempt to not, not put people in a box, but to define your reality and the way you see it and therefore help you understand yourself and then help you, more importantly, understand others and how you'll have conflict. We use these in premarital counseling all the time. The Myers-Briggs has 16 different types. I'm an ENFJ, which means I'm an extrovert, I'm an intuitive, I'm a feeler, and then um, I process by way of judgment, by having some kind of closure to things. That's just how I live, that's how I see life. I have friends that are ENFJs. We I just completely understand each other. I'm married to an, uh, an E-S-T-J, uh, and she's a sensor thinker, and we have great conflict because of that. And um, that's just how it is, right? I'm an intuitive feeler. She's a sensor thinker. She needs data. I just have gut knowledge, right? Okay, which isn't always right. Don't tell me that, though. It's my intuition, right? Um, the Taylor-Johnson has nine personality types, and they're polar opposites, uh, the disc test has four basic ones. Some of you are drivers, like you're dominant. You walk into a room, you're the lion, you kind of take over. Others are I, they're the interpersonal kind. And so you're like the otter, you kind of run around. You're like the cheerleader, you're the enthusiast person. Some of you are S, the steadiness, like the golden retriever, that long-term relationship. Not a lot of relationships, but long-term relationships. And some of the C, which is that compliant person, like the busy beaver, always accomplishing things. I'm a C with deep tendencies because I have to lead an organization. And so I become a D, which is really uncomfortable and really wearing on me. It tires me out. Okay. But we all have these things. The strengths finders, you've got five strengths and anyway, all that stuff. Well, in my doctoral work a number of years ago, five, six years ago, I was introduced to a different kind of personality test. And when I was introduced to that and went through the class, I was stunned because when I read these nine different types without question, I didn't even have to take a test. I knew exactly who I was. And it was eerie for me because it absolutely nailed every part of my life, including childhood wounds. When I read the list and it said childhood wounds, I thought this is weird because that's exactly what I went through, which caused an existential crisis when I began to think, wait a minute, did those things really happen or did I just think that they happened? And I checked and they did happen. I, you know, I know they happened. But I realized I chose to interpret those painful events in a certain way. And my brother chose to interpret them differently. And my sister chose to interpret them differently. And as a result, we've lived different lives because of that. You can take two people who go through the same painful experiences, and sorry to be cliche, but it's true. One can get bitter and one can get better and they can see it from a different lens. And they went through the same exact situation and they would tell you the exact opposite story. So my question today is, is your story true. Because if you have not let God come in and wipe away the false narrative that you've built around yourself, how will you ever understand what God wants to do in your life? Because so many of us just live and we power through and we create this story and it's about self-preservation. It's about, as I said last week, we become the hero of our own story. The story really circles around us, right? Think about that. As children, we're narcissistic. The whole world revolves around us, right? Every child thinks they're the center of the universe because they are in their mind, right? But we got to grow up out of that. And we got to realize that's not the only way to see life. And it usually takes in your 30s or 40s or longer. It was in 40s for me till I discovered that 
um, I wasn't seeing some things clearly and correctly. And as a result of that, I was actually blocking God's ability to do redemptive work. I was creating a self-salvation plan. Like I said, today's not a sermon. It's a pastoral counseling session in my office, very big office. And I want to share with you what I learned a number of years ago and through these varying personalities. And so I want to just share them with you. They're, they're just on the screen here, and I'm just going to kind of read through the varying definitions of those. But um, some of you are reformers. Uh, this is me. I'm a reformer. A reformer has perfectionistic tendencies. Tendencies is a little bit light. It's definitely more perfectionistic. You're ethical, though. You're dedicated. You're reliable. You're motivated to Live life a certain way, a right way, a correct way, the way you see it, the way you think is right. You want to improve the world. You want to avoid fault and blame. And if you're a reformer, you have a driving need. Your dominant need, your thrust of your life is to perfect yourself, to perfect others in the world, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But the reason you do it is because you're afraid of making mistakes. You're afraid of failure because it's not okay in your perspective and your viewpoint to make mistakes. It's not okay for other people to make mistakes. As a reformer, you fear being accused, misunderstood, misinterpreted, corrected, blamed, not meeting other people's expectations. Somewhere along the way, you picked up the message that you must be better than you are. You're an idealist at heart, so you believe that anything that's flawed can and must be fixed, including yourself. And you have a relentless inner critic that's always in self-condemnation mode, so you're never allowed to enjoy success. Some of you are helpers. I have helpers in my life. You're warm and caring and giving. You're motivated by a need to be loved and needed to avoid acknowledging your own needs, though. If you're a helper, you have a driving need to meet the needs of others. Why? Because deep down inside, you believe it's not okay to have your own needs. And so you serve others. As a helper, your underlying fear is being unloved and unwanted, being abandoned. You fear relational tension and conflict and confrontation and disappointing others because you need them to need you. You often believe the lie that says you're not enough, and so you compensate by staying focused on the needs of others and denying your own needs. Some of you are achievers. Achievers are success-oriented, image-conscious, wired for productivity. You have a desire to be or appear successful to avoid failure. If you're an achiever, you have a driving need to succeed, to appear successful, to avoid failure at all costs. Why? Because you grew up in a world where failure was not allowed, was not an option. As an achiever, your underlying fear is not being valued for who you are. You believe the lie that says you're only valued because of what you do and how well you succeed and how much attention you receive because of it. I have an achiever in my life, and this last week he started a meeting. He said, don't forget, I'm an achiever, and so I'm, I want to do a good job in this meeting, and I want to feel good afterwards. And I'm like, thank you. And I'm a reformer, and I want to help you get better, okay? Because I believe you can. It does help to know some of these things. Some of you are individualists. Uh, you're romantic, creative, sensitive, moody. You're motivated by the need to be understood, to experience your oversized feelings, and to avoid being ordinary. I love, I love individualists. They're moody. They're romantic. They are a challenge because they think they're the only one. And they're the only one that's ever experienced these things. And they're individuals. And they have a driving need to be special and unique. Okay. It's just the way they see things. Why? Because you think your intrinsic value is the fact that you're different. And you work overtime to be different. As an individualist, your underlying fear is being abandoned by God and others because you're just too much. You fear being misunderstood, dismissed, stereotyped. Deep down, you want to be understood and loved for the individual that you are. 
Uh, some of you are investigators. I have a friend who's an investigator. You're analytical. You're detached. You're private. You're motivated by the need to gain knowledge and rely on no one but yourself. You have a tendency to retreat into your mind to gather data to acknowledge that the world is safe when you understand the world and communicate it to others. Why? Because you have a deep underlying fear that you will not have the right answer and not be capable. You will not be competent. As an investigator, your underlying fear is tied to the belief that your worth is your performance, specifically in having the right answers for every situation. Some of you are loyalists. You're committed, practical, and witty. You're a worst-case scenario thinker, motivated by fear and the need for security. You have a driving need to be safe and secure and feel that way. Why? Because you have a deep fear that one day you will be alone and abandoned when you have a need. As a loyalist, your bottom line fear is that everything will go wrong, and therefore you have this hard time trusting others and offer, being uh, the receiver of guidance and support. Deep down inside, though, you want security, and you have an inner doomsday committee that spins out the worst-case scenarios all the time. Some of you have an inner doomsday committee. It's always the what-if. Some of you are an enthusiast. I have a friend who's an enthusiast. I have a couple friends who are enthusiasts. They want everybody to have a party because life is a party. You're fun and spontaneous, adventurous. You're motivated by the need to be happy, to plan exciting experiences, and to avoid pain. You have this intense, intense, serious case of FOMO. You know what FOMO is, right? Fear of missing out. And so you can't miss out. You have to experience everything to its fullest. You want to seek to experience it. Why? Because deep down inside, you want to be content. You want to be happy. You want to be loved by others. As an enthusiast, you believe the message that you are on your own and that no one is willing or available to help you. Some of you are challengers. Man, challengers are challenging because you're commanding, intense, and confrontational. I once had a boss who was a, uh, a challenger, and uh, this person would walk into the office, swing a baseball bat, and just thrash everything and destroy everything and walk out and go, man, I did a good job leading. I'm like, everybody's in tears over here, you know? But that's how they lead. They challenge. They confront errors. They are quick to assert power over others, especially when they feel you're weak and vulnerable. You have a driving need to control others. Why? Because you are masking the weakness in your own life, and you want to unmask weakness in others. As a challenger, your underlying fear is being hurt or controlled, and somewhere along the way, you picked up the message that the world is a tough place, and only the strong survive, and you decided to be a survivor and to crush anybody else that's not willing to survive. And others are a peacemaker. I'm married to a peacemaker. My mom's a peacemaker. I have peacemakers all around me. In fact, you know, a lot of Christians, a lot of people that go to church are peacemakers. They really are. You're pleasant, laid back, cooperative. You're motivated by the need to keep peace, to merge your life with others, to avoid any conflict. You have a driving need to have peace in all relationships. Why? Because you believe deep down inside that broken relationships are a failure on your part, that you did not fix it. As a peacemaker, your underlying fear is being separated from others. You fear unresolved conflict. You fear relational tension. You fear being separated because of that. Uh, Deep down, you want peace. Somewhere along the way, you picked up the message that your wants, your opinions, your needs, and your dreams do not matter. Now, I don't know if you found yourself in there. As soon as I read this, I knew I was a reformer. Everything was said about that was exactly how I interpret data. And then I began the quest to realize What is that doing to my relationship to God? In counseling, we say that the story that you build around yourselves, your defense mechanism, when you're a kid, saves you. It did. It saved me. The way I thought, the way I acted, the way I learned to live life saved me. 
But as you grow older and you become an adult, if you don't unlearn that story, peel back those layers, it will no longer save you. It will kill you. And that's just basic biblical understanding. That what you've put around your life, what I put around my life to help me survive in this world as a young person, one day wore me out to the point of discouragement, depression, overload, burnout, bitterness. Not just one point, many points in my life. Until I finally came to the realization that I need grace, not just for others, but I need grace for me. That it's okay to not fix something because not everything needs fixing and you might not even be able to fix it. That's the story of my life. I don't know about you. I want to think about this because all of these stories have false narratives built around them. And although we can learn a lot from them, the most important thing we learn is that we actually have a false story, that we're hindering the work of God in our lives. If you're a reformer like me, your desire to perfect yourself and others is killing you, and you work yourself to death because you expect perfection inside and outside. And what you realize, and you need to realize, is you don't have to be perfect because you'll never achieve in the first place. Only Jesus was perfect, and you have to fall down at his feet and receive his forgiveness And you can't work your salvation. You can't. I mean, you could try. I've tried for so many years, but you can't. So you receive grace. If you're a helper, you no longer have to build your story around helping other people and finding self-worth and denying your own needs and being codependent by seeing your life through how much you are loved by others. Because you know what? You're loved by God. And deep down, you're loved by God no matter what. And when he is in the process of saving you and conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ, he is working on you. But he doesn't need your help to make it better. He's done all the work for you. If you're an achiever, you no longer have to identify yourself by what you do in your successes or apparent successes and your propped up successes because God did it all. And you are loved simply for who you are, a son or daughter of the Most High God. The Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked and we believe lies about ourselves. And if you're an achiever, you believe that you're only valued by God when you succeed. And that's not true. Uh, Some of you are individualists and and, uh, you no longer need to live in a world where you're special and you don't belong (laughs) Um, because God loves you exactly as you are. Quirks and all, the differences and all. You don't have to strive to be different because God loves you. If you're an investigator, you no longer have to have the right all the answers because deep down alone, you got to realize God alone has the right answers. And you can sit there and say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that, and that's okay. And I'm going to live in the tension of not understanding the sovereignty of God, and I'm going to sleep peaceful at night. And that's hard for an investigator. Some of you are loyalists, and if you're a loyalist, you no longer need to look to others for safety and security because God alone has provided that. Through Jesus Christ, you are accepted and dearly loved, and you are safe in Christ. And He will not reject you, no matter what. If you're an enthusiast, you no longer have to fear being alone. Why? Because you're not. You're in the family of God. You've been adopted into this family, not of your own effort or your own work or your own value by what you do, but because you are loved. If you're a challenger, you no longer need to hide your weaknesses because you're not going to be rejected. You're not going to be betrayed. 
And the best thing you could do is get in a small group and reveal your weaknesses and not try to fix others. If you're a peacemaker, you no longer need to build your story around controlling the environment for peace because brokenness does not mean failure. It means you're human. And guess what? It means other people are human too. And you will not have peaceful relationships all the time. In fact, the Bible says that God himself is our peace. And he came down and offered peace. And ultimate peace is found in him and through him. Now, you can't find your true self in a false story, my friends. And I and my wife and, you know, through our family and even through staff. And we're, we're working through these things to realize that the lies we believe will destroy us as followers of God. Because we need a new identity. Not the false identity that we have created or allowed to be created based upon the experiences of our past. I know things happened. I know things happened. Things happened to me. A lot of bad things happened to me growing up. But the reality is you choose how to see these things. What if the story you've lived in, the story you grew up with, the story that helped shape who you are today is not really true? If you and I don't let God do the very hard work to help us see that we are not the sum total of our own identity, that we will not have any room for God to recreate a brand new life through Jesus Christ. The world needs to see a new identity in us, not a Christian experience identity, not a going to church identity, not a being as good as we can be identity and hoping God will be pleased with us, but identity that we are broken and failed and flawed, and that's why Jesus came. And when we receive and respond to his message, we are being transformed from the inside out and God does his work on us. The apostle Paul wrote this. He said, and I love it. It's in the context of a longer teaching, but he says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. In my 40s, I had to really dwell on that a lot, that I was still believing some childish things about myself and about God, and I had to put them away. John Calvin, a great theologian, wrote this, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And if you are not allowing God to dig deep down, better yet, plunge you deep down to the dark waters to where all you have is him, then you're not even going to know who he is. Thomas Merton wrote this, before we can become who we really are, we must become conscious of the fact that the person we think we are here and now is at best an imposter and a stranger. Uh, my friend Gunnar is going to come up and share a little bit of his story because as friends, we've been on this story together for 20 plus years. Uh, but as well, he's had some own, his own experiences, some successes and failures and struggles. And so, Gunnar, um, you, you find yourself as a helper, right? I do. That's, yeah. got this stool for you. You helped me. Thank right, you yeah, very much. Right. That was good. That was good. I, I, I love you more because you helped me. I love no, you too. Um, Thank you. Talk about the bad in your life. Just some points. How has this intrinsic desire to help actually hurt you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I go back to, I mean, just back, uh, back a little bit. You know, my name means warrior. Gunner means warrior. And uh, for years, I was a worrier. I got the letter wrong, you know, right? And so what was I, I was worried about what people thought about me. I was worried about what people were saying, and um, boy, I let that define me. And uh, it's, it was never enough. People would just, you know, they, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's like putting it into a pocket with a hole in it. It was never enough. 
And what happens, I turn my life and will over to what other people thought, not to what God uh, knows about me and who I am. You know, and that really started, uh, Pastor, when, when I was a young boy. Uh, I had a, an older brother that uh, struggled, struggled with, a, you know, alcohol and, and drugs and nine years older than me. My parents were both at work and uh, left us kind of there uh, at home. And, and there was oftentimes a lot of psychological abuse. You know, I, I remember a time just holding a pillow up and on the other side of that pillow was the, uh, a shotgun that he'd, he'd taken to my to my face and or he'd come at me with knives and just scared me mm. and I just I think about how terrified I was and, and at that point there I mean you know the devil wants to come steal kill and destroy and uh, boy I was off to the races mm. and I was just just always wanting to please and just always wanted to to be loved and needed and uh, struggled a lot with abandonment mm. and fear of rejection and so you work these things out and they they help you till they kill you kind of scenario right yeah, yeah absolutely. and just not long ago, you found yourself to the point of death, yeah, actual, no, uh, literal death. Well, I found myself in a place where um, I was, uh, I was, I was 49 now, I was 47 years old, I was in the ER, and uh, I was overweight, I was stressed. I mean, my goodness, look at my social media feed for the last 15 years. When are you ever going to see a smile on this guy that's always out encouraging people and everyone else? I was, they didn't want to let people in. I was living a life not according to the identity God had for me. I ended up in the ER. I was just way overweight and just stressed. I was just all, I was hoarding so much hurt on the inside. You know, you can't ever outrun on the outside what you're, what you're battling on the inside, right? And so I began this journey in the ER. The doctor said stress kills. And so I began this journey. I just, this was now or never. It's time to, let's, let's go after it in our 40s. Mm-hmm. And surrender to what God has for us. And to really, truly take the head knowledge and go to the heart knowledge. And let Jesus be Lord of my life. And um, lost 70 pounds running and all of that. And a friend of mine said, you know, Pastor, he says, how did you do it? And how did you keep it off now over a couple of years now? And I said, what do you think? And he said, determination. And I said, nope. It was forgiveness. I had to let go mm. of uh, that which was... Uh, holding on to me on the inside because I was keeping, I wasn't able to really truly see my identity in all that Christ had for me because I had turned my life and will over to this identity that wasn't me. So I found myself on a phone call uh, a year and a half ago in October of 2017, right after the ER, and I was on the phone with my brother and it came up Mm. for the first time in 40 some years. And it was such a beautiful thing to be able to tell my brother, I forgive you. I forgive you. And at that moment, Pastor, it was like a million pounds came off my shoulders that I had been carrying for so many years that I had allowed to define me. And now, I tell you what, I, I feel like I know Christ Jesus for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's breakthrough after breakthrough, and I'm seeing my blind spots. I'm giving it to Christ. And here we are. This is the most important journey of our lives, this identity that we know who we are when we were fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb. God has a plan for you. You know, and the devil wants to come to steal, kill, and destroy, but God has a rich and satisfying life. I'm ready for the rest of my life. Well, so. I'm, I'm going to pray because I don't want to ruin that <laughs> come moment. Come on, somebody. <laughs> um, Father, you know, we all have a story, and, you know, forgiveness is step one. In my own life, and Gunnar's life, and so many people's lives, they can resonate with that. That there's hurt and there's pain, and the devil has, he has stolen our identity. And we don't even know it. And we're believing a lie and it's killing us. And so, Father, in the midst of this conversation, 
um, yeah, sure, I hope we learned a little bit more who we were, but more than that, who you are. That it's all about you and what you've done and who we are because of Jesus Christ. That we would all have a breakthrough today and this week and along the journey of realizing that all the things that we've created, the story that we've propped up, the, the shell that we've made is hollow and empty and everything will be different. Our, our friendships, our, our, our relationships, if we're married, our marriages, if, if we're on a string of broken relationships or at work or in school, most importantly with you, you want us to see ourselves as you see us and to tear down those false stories that really do kill us. Father, the world needs to see people who are truly transformed, freed up, and living the life that you've created us to be that we who are made in your image once again find restoration in that. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.